0: I'm Chris Tapley and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. We're moving back into the series world with this week's guest, so let's go ahead and have her introduce herself. My
1: name is Susanna Grant, and my craft is filmmaking.
0: Sometimes the work of filmmaking and journalism overlaps. Obviously, that's often the case with documentary projects, but with something like Netflix's limited series Unbelievable, which the company recently revealed has been streamed by some 32 million households since its September release, the impact of docudrama is truly palpable. An adaptation of vital, dense reporting published by ProPublica and The Marshall Project the series tells the story of two police detectives from different precincts who cracked the case of a serial rapist who carried out his vicious crimes in Colorado and Washington state between 2008 and 2011. Susanna Grant developed the project into an eight episode depiction of both bungled and bravura police work. It's also an essential analysis of the cold, systemic realities that victims of sexual assault often face when they make the courageous decision to report the crimes against them. Susanna is the Oscar nominated writer of Steven Soderbergh's 2000 film Aaron Brockovich. She also penned the scripts for films like Ever After, 28 Days, and In Her Shoes, among others. On this episode, Susanna will talk about her efforts to avoid a one-dimensional portrait of shoddy detective work. She'll also talk about developing the look of the series with director Lisa Cholodenko in the earlier episodes. And stick around until the end for the most important lessons she learned in film school. We're going to get into that and a whole lot more, so let's begin. Susanna, let's uh, start by discussing the development and the writing Uh Of this, uh, beginning with the structure, you settled on eight episodes. Was that decided early on? Was that something you came to? How did you come to decide ultimately what to include and what not to include? Because you have a big canvas anyway, right? It's a it's a series, so
1: yeah. You know, we we toyed around with the idea of doing a two hour movie, but the more we talked about it, the more we thought there are so many interesting avenues to go down and ideas to flesh out a little bit within it that you wouldn't be able to do in a two hour movie. And a lot of the people who worked both in support of Marie and in support of the detectives in Colorado, we wanted to really give them their due and bring them to life and show that this wasn't three individuals. You know, these were people working in concert or against other people and other fleshed out human beings. So it just felt like the eight hours was going to give us a better opportunity to really turn over every rock that we wanted to and spend time with it, you know?
0: Yeah. Once you decided on that, within that, how did you decide how it would be structured?
1: Well, we inherited a really great structure. I don't know if you've read the article in which is based. Okay. So there are a lot of dramatic structures set up in the beginning of that article that take the viewer on an interesting journey in terms of his or her own ideas about whether Marie told the truth or not. And we thought that was an interesting thing to play with as well. So, you know, it worked really well in the article. So we we thought, <laughs> why mess with that? It's such yeah. a great storytelling structure. Um, so we started with that, obviously, as as we got deeper into it, we made changes. We took out the character of the perpetrator. He mm-hmm. He's examined more deeply in in both the article and the book that preceded this. But for us all along, it was the story of those three women and their journey through how sexual assault is or is not investigated,
0: mm-hmm. you know? When you were you know, breaking this out, you wrote the first episode with Michael Shabin and Ayelet Waldman uh-huh. and a few other writers, Jennifer Schur and, and Becky Mode handled a few episodes as well. Talk about doling out that work. Netflix
1: ordered it off of one episode and then I quickly wrote the second and I knew I was going to write the third. So um, by the time we got into the room, we were really talking about that back half of the series. You know, one, two and three were, were already sort of structurally sound. But it's a lot of information, you know, on episode four, you start the investigation, you start the red herrings and we do what anybody does when they're breaking a story. You just break it down into all the little pieces and look Mm -hmm. at them all and figure out what order creates the dramatic build you want and figure out how to parse that up into chapters, individual chapters. So we made sure that we had those pretty soundly set. Um, And then everybody went off and wrote at that Mm -hmm. point and- Michael and I did another and Becky did one and Jen did one. And then and then I, I was going to do the last two and I ran out of time. So Becky helped me with one of them, which was great. It's uh, so we co-wrote
0: seven and then I did eight by myself. Yeah, you're wearing tons of hats on this one. Yeah. You know, you begin the series uh, first with these kind of sweeping images of the neighborhood and, and then right into Marie giving her statement about what happened. It's kind of there in, in the reporting to begin with, as you mentioned. But how did you decide like visual storytelling, how we want to kick off this narrative?
1: So there, there are a couple answers to that. One was I wanted to set it in normalcy. I wanted to set it in a town that could feel like your town. I think a lot of people are really good at othering the notion of sexual assault and victims of sexual assault. So so in the script, I had, you know, scenes of, of real normalcy. And then and then Lisa Cholodenko directed the first three. And she and Tron, who was a director of photography, Introduce the notion of the kind of drive-by. Those first images, they're all drive-bys. And the idea was to, in addition to that sense of normalcy, introduce the idea of stalking and following. You know, there's a woman in every one of those frames. A car is driving slowly by. So it is normalcy, but there is, I think, a sense of unsettledness to it. And then mm-hmm. we have a really beautiful score by Will Bates mm-hmm. that strengthened that combination of the world you know but there's an element to it that's untrustworthy
0: yeah there's also a few I think do not enter signs that you see Mm -hmm. in some of those Mm -hmm. images too so it's very interesting way to to kick it off you know yeah Uh, and also how did you decide on introducing these various characters getting back to just structuring the whole thing out because you know we get through an entire episode before we meet Karen Duvall Mm Merritt Weaver's character and it's not until the end of that episode that we meet Grace Rasmussen the uh, Tony Collette character yeah so You've got a lot of space to breathe and, and introduce them as you wish. And so how did you decide how to do that?
1: Well, we got a big, great bit of information from Netflix when, when just figuring out how to, how to lay it all out. And they said most of their viewers view in two episode bites. So I thought, well, great. I'll think of it as a, as a two hour pilot. Mm. Um, and that gave me the room to wait to introduce Karen. DeVa. I thought of okay, if, if that's how your viewers are viewing it, I'm going to write to that. And it was great; it was incredibly liberating. And to you know, to have Tony Colette and have the freedom to not introduce her. I mean, not that I don't want Tony on screen all the time, you <laughs> know, but to be able to hold off on on introducing that and uh, until two hours in is, is a real luxury. You yeah. Know? I think it's harder to do that in series where you're, you know, you're showing one episode a week. Yeah. You know,
0: it, um, it allows you too for her, especially to have this big impact with yeah. how she's introduced. I mean, she gets this kind of badass scene and, yeah. you know, oh, okay. You get an idea of who she is right out of the gate and you're ready to see more of her once that episode yeah. ends, you know. And
1: I think the introduction of Merritt's character does a similar thing. Mm-hmm. I know the first episode is really hard for people to watch, and she's got such a graceful quality to her, and and competence to her, and compassion to her. Really, just in that first scene where she's she's driving her car and sort of disagreeing with her husband about how they're going to mm-hmm. handle her daughter's cough, you know.
0: <laughs> um, yeah.
1: But there's something that I think lets a viewer go, oh, okay, okay. There's a there's a grown-up in the room. There's yeah. Somebody who's going to point this all in the right direction somehow you know so but being able to wait to introduce that is a real it's the luxury of streaming
0: yeah absolutely and after what you've just seen in this Mm -hmm. first episode it's like now you get an episode where it's like this is what it should be this is what the investigation should be this is where the empathy level should be Uh it's such a like kind of whiplash to to what you've just witnessed for the first hour yeah and also regarding her I, i love her just uh I don't want to say monotone, but it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> what comes to mind, just the way she's clearly talking through stuff in her mind. And mm-hmm. there's something relaxing about it.
1: Very relaxing. There was somebody wrote somewhere, if there's a if there is a heaven and God greets me there, I hope she has the voice of Merritt Weaver.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But was that kind of the idea to just show this this drastic difference between these two approaches? Yeah. these two episodes Yeah. Yeah. To
1: really show, you know what, there was a This American Life also did this story has been told now four times. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, anecdotally a lot more than that, too. But it's the testament to the strength of the material that it, it can survive and actually have a real impact in every in every medium. But This American Life did an hour on it. And Ira Glass said something to the effect of it being a, an example of the justice system going horribly wrong. And then in another example uh, of it going as it should, yeah. um, his distillation of the story in that way was really helpful to me mm-hmm. in writing it and was sort of a North Star of sorts in, in how we were portraying it, which isn't to say that, you know, I wanted to make everybody in Washington evil and everyone in Colorado right and saintly in fact I I tried to go against that instinct as much as I could because that's just not great storytelling but yeah that was obviously very intentional
0: to yeah. show the differences oh and since you mentioned that you know the fact that it's been told a few times uh was was there something you felt that the story was missing that you wanted to put into how you depicted it
1: I mean, I wouldn't say missing, right. but I thought it would benefit from being told in this medium. I just think there's a way to connect uh, to people's hearts when they watch something on screen, you know, acted and portrayed by people. You you can see their emotions on their faces. I think it can have, for viewers, a more immediate emotional impact. And I mean, my, my theory about sexual assault is not that people don't believe women. M- mm. My personal theory is people believe women, they just don't care mm. enough. And it's easy not to care if you're not looking, you yeah. know? And I thought, if you tell this story and, and you put this young woman in people's living rooms and you ask people to walk through this process with her, I think they'll care. I think mm-hmm. they will care more. And then also there's just like the basic nature of reach, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. ProPublica and the Marshall Project are the best we have in investigative journalism. And I read them all the time and I listen to This American Life all the time. And there are a lot of people like me. However, they're not in 190 countries overnight as Netflix is, you know, yeah. I mean, the a month in 32 million households, which they said was about 50 million people, yeah. you know, that reach with this story and that ability to have it land in different cultures you know it's been it's been really well received in india you know which Mm -hmm. has a very active conversation around sexual assault also south america and that that's exciting yeah absolutely so i wouldn't I, i i think those prior tellings of this story are fantastic and we owe a tremendous amount to them but it was exciting to be able to blast it out
0: a little wider yeah there's something that developed With these two detective characters, Uh, you know, you took some liberties with with telling their story a little bit this kind of Mm mentor-mentee relationship Mm -hmm. that you've talked about that developed between the two characters. Did that just happen naturally? Or was there something you wanted to say about that relationship between women that we haven't seen on screen? Anything like that?
1: Well, you know, I, I didn't really invent that from whole cloth. I spoke to the woman who inspired Tony's character. Before the production, I didn't speak to the woman who inspired Merrick's character. She just like, I don't know, she's busy. She works for the FBI now. She didn't get back to me and She's fine. She's very, very laid back about it all. But, you know, you talk to them a little bit and there's a story that Merritt's character tells in one episode in which she describes seeing Grace Rasmussen at a drug bust when she was a rookie. Mm. And that actually was true, that she had seen her and been impressed with her when she was working narcotics undercover. So I had that bit of information. Well, that's sort of wonderful. That's it. That's a great thing to hold Mm -hmm. as you're building this relationship. I didn't want it to just be two cops solving this together. I wanted to show a relationship developing between them. You know, they both work in very male workplaces. There are a lot of different ways to go about that. I thought it was interesting to look at two different ways of going about that, Mm -hmm. two different ways of um, being the only woman in in a very male workplace. You know, there's all this Information about how um, the more women there are on police forces, the better record they have of investigating sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So the idea of showing that you know one plus one could we equal a lot more than two when you get two really good detectives working together who are women. You know, that that felt like a good message to share. It was it was it's based in truth, you know, forces do better on this issue when there are more women in them.
0: Absolutely. All right. Moving off the page Mm -hmm. into the production now. uh, It's interesting to me that that you took the role of kind of bringing the series home as director Mm -hmm. rather than launching it. You're working with Lisa Chelodenko on Mm -hmm. those first three episodes as director. Is that something you wanted to do from the start to, to uh, kind of to, bring it home at the it, end? Yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, I, I wanted to, I definitely wanted to direct it. I wanted to direct as, as much of it as I could. I was also doing a lot of writing and I was showrunning it and I'm a huge fan of Lisa's. I mean, there were a few things that were really important in the direction of this. And, and I think primary among them was the delicacy of the sort of airspace between human beings and the ways in which that space can be clear and people can understand each other and connect with each other and the ways in which that space can be muddy and confusion can happen and people can miss see each other and misunderstand each other. And I mean, if you look at all Lisa's work, it has such um, human emotional integrity. I mean, it's there isn't a false moment in, in any of her films. And I and Sarah Timberman, who's my producing partner, who was, you know, with me every step of the way and made all these decisions together. She and I early on said we should see if LASIK will will jump on board for this. And and we wooed her and she came in and that she's the one. And then she was squirreling <laughs> and she said she wasn't gonna do it. And we kept chasing her. And um, she has said she was sort of unclear about what she as an artist could bring to it mm-hmm. or would bring to it that would elevate it. And she didn't want to sign on without being clear about what that contribution would be. And we didn't know what it would be, but we knew that she's enough of an artist that she'd find, you know, mm-hmm. she would. And she did. She really did. There's a whole, what I said about the opening, that, yeah. that level of consciousness to everything she was doing. But she added something to the you know, the flashback sequences of the sexual assault. The flashbacks were as they were on the page when she got them, but she was really racking her brain about how she could get into the mind of this young woman. And this idea of a picture of her at the beach was present Mm -hmm. in the script. And so she came up with the idea of her disappearing into that picture during the assault, which was such a, it's such a great addition. You know, I think it really is great for that moment. Because it, it really speaks to her coping mechanism mm-hmm. in the moment. But then it has you know, it has implications throughout because she does the same thing again. She disappears in pressured moments later in the script in ways that people don't understand. But I think the audience does, having seen where her mind goes in, some, in a situation like that. Yeah, you did so. a great
0: job of foreseeing my next question, which was <laughs> that very thing, like yeah. how, how, did, how to shoot that, how to yeah. show it.
1: That's the mentality of disappearing that the question of, you know, how to shoot a rape was something I'd I'd never written a scene of sexual violence before. So I I sat down to write it and I was in sort of the objective um, viewpoint and I immediately I just felt wrong. It just felt Like I couldn't write it. I just thought this out, and this was terrible. It feels like voyeuristic
0: and observational, weird passive stasis. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And there's so much, either overt or subtle, rape pornography in our culture. And I, it just it felt like even just thinking about it was bumping up kind of close to that. And there Mm -hmm. was no way we could do that, you know. So I just switched it to subjective and her point of view. And and since her account of it is what's called into question anyway it ended up being a really good narrative device as yeah. well because um if the only way you're seeing it is from her retelling then you should just see it from her experience mm-hmm. so a lot of people have asked me oh was it a really hard thing to shoot and very little screen time yeah. of sexual violence on it and and there's actually it's it's emotionally it's graphic you hear too yeah it, it is what the 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 sound is is very strong and the score is very strong and but it's it's not at all graphic yeah you know it's disturbing yeah it's really not graphic at all
0: i I say too because it's what you hear also because every time we come back to it we hear that certain timbre of her Mm -hmm. kind of shout or scream like Mm -hmm. muffled scream and it it takes you right to the before you're even in the scene watching it you know where you're going with it and it's just it's it's an effective device yeah tell me about establishing the look and working with the dps you mentioned uh
1: Q and Tron Tron,
0: Mm -hmm. uh, was on the first three with with Lisa. Yeah. Just what was the overall conceit there in the simplest terms, I guess, like, what did you want this to look like?
1: Nobody wanted it to feel pushed at all, to feel the the phrase that Lisa uses all the time. The word Lisa uses all the time is overdetermined, you know. I thought it was, I mean, even in the writing, in the writing, in every aspect of it, if you feel like you're pushing a message, if an audience feels like, oh, this person's really trying to make a point here, you Mm. know, they'll feel alienated. I would feel alienated. So we just tried to just tell the story as much as possible and have that dictate what the emotional content is. So at the beginning, you know, we talked with Lisa and Q and we also had great production designer, and it, they had visual references. And the, I wish I could remember the name of a photographer, but there's a photographer who does a series of um, photographs that are all women in, in fairly lonely, stark rooms. Mm-hmm. And those were a visual reference. And we thought, okay, that that sounds good. And then Lisa also talked a lot about Rosemary's Baby and yeah. the sort of gaslighting mm-hmm. that happens to her in that movie and how that was achieved and you know those were the two things they were talking about so that felt good to me in terms of just the setting the tone for those first three and then and then the storytelling really shifts for the middle when michael dinner came on and it's much more dynamic and it's just information flying at both the detectives in colorado and then marie where her life gets so complicated legally and logistically and and interpersonally and and he has a very different hand you know mm-hmm. he has a very different look and style there's a shift in the story so it was kind of yeah. a welcome a welcome transition
0: what about for the two at the end that you're taking on the two
1: at the end well you know it was really working toward a level of emotional resolution you know i it's it's the um the first one i directed is primarily the arrest of the guy and the emotional implications of that i just always saw this whole piece as yes there's a plot there's a really strong plot but to me it was a character piece mm-hmm. and in terms of figuring out how to shoot the arrest the whole thing is shown through the experience of Karen Duval and it, it ends up being for me a very strong character moment obviously it's a huge plot moment mm-hmm. as well but i had two shots that i i shot that were not centered or driven by or or dictated by her experience That whole arrest sequence, and I didn't end up using them because they just didn't fit. Yeah. So there's a sort of quieting down of the noise, not to a happy resolution. There's hyper energy into something that's more like a vibration. Mm -hmm. So taking it from those big emotional swings and then bringing it down to something that's more of a quieter, but palpable vibration of the impact
0: of something like this. And the way you shoot his sort of uh, booking or yeah. delousing or yeah. <laughs> all of that, uh, it's its fascinating <laughs> because he, he's left processing. Yeah, He's left yeah. there naked and uh-huh. with this minimal shaft of light. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just a striking image. Yeah. You know, wh- yeah. what were you going for with how you were breaking him down there?
1: That also really came back uh, to the script. We had a great technical consultant. It was a woman named Liz Devine who worked for the sheriff's department for 15 years. And she, any anything law enforcement related i i ran by her and i kept saying how do they keep track of someone when they're processed into jail like how do how do you know who's who <laughs> and and she finally said oh they 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 give him a wristband and every one of his victims when she went through the processing at the you know of the rape kit also had a wristband so that was sort of a key to me, and I thought, oh, he's, we'll put him through exactly what they went through mm-hmm. and and we'll make sure that he experiences it as a violation. obviously, I'm not saying we'll put him through sure. what they went through with the assault. I mean, the process of obtaining the information for a, a rape kit is very similar mm-hmm. to the process of processing one of these perpetrators in the land in jail. yeah, they want they need the same information from their bodies. So once I saw it as a parallel of that, that sort of formed the the mental framework for how I wanted to see it. I wanted to see that he was enduring a tiny piece of what he had inflicted mm-hmm. on others and that it was very important. You know, you don't even see the people who are processing him at all. And it's a real physical violation. And I, I wanted nobody to care who he was for him to be irrelevant.
0: Yeah. The answer to this was has been kind of scattered through what we've been talking about, maybe. But I just wanted to talk about how did you want to both sort of embrace what the audience has been conditioned to expect of procedural drama, but also break that mold a bit and convey information in different ways?
1: You know, I have, I think, what was probably a um, an asset here in that I'm really not a consumer of procedural drama. Yeah. I'm really, it's not <laughs> my, uh, nothing against it. I'm sure there are a lot of great ones, but it's it's not the language I speak. So I wasn't consciously busting tropes. I wasn't saying, oh, we're going to upend Cagney and Lacey here. I've never <laughs> seen Cagney and Lacey. Again, no disrespect, probably a great show. but um, One of my mom's favorites. <laughs> great. I'm sure it's wonderful. So I think rather than figuring out how I was going to do something different, I think maybe the Maybe the big difference was I just kept saying this is a character drama. Mm-hmm. This is a character driven piece that happens to have a gripping plot. Yeah. And everything hung on those on those characters. Right.
0: All right. So you've shot the series. You're in the editing room. Mm-hmm. Uh. How did you approach this? I mean, were there certain episodes that needed to be nailed down first that would help inform others? Yeah,
1: well, you know, you you roll along. So
0: were you editing as you went then? Is that, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So while Lisa's shooting, Michael's prepping. And while Lisa's editing, Michael's shooting and I'm prepping. So we're all seeing what everyone else is is doing. The benefit of getting your scripts pretty buttoned up before you shoot is that there isn't that much that changes when you're in the editing room, a lot of tightening, a lot of you know obviously I overwrite, I overwrite all the time, and you'd think I'd learn by now, but no, so there's a lot of pulling out stuff that that wasn't necessary that you don't need to say twice and mm-hmm. or that you can indicate without saying out loud so so there's there was tightening of everything um I lifted an entire scene out of the final episode because. I realized <laughs> I had a scene in which she basically said, This is how this show's gonna end. I'm gonna tell you everything that's gonna happen in the next eight minutes. <laughs> Again, you'd think I'd know by now, but it read good on the page. So
0: <laughs> we're always learning.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, not 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 huge evolutions. And then, you know, then and, and there's so much about sound and music yeah. and but we didn't move anything from one episode to the other or anything like that. I mean, they, yeah. they, they, were, all, they were all intact. You know? It was all
0: pretty straightforward. Then. Yeah, yeah, it
1: was. We had this idea. You know, there was one idea that we hung on to for a while in the script phase. We thought about having a device in which, as the detectives get information about this guy, we'll see him stalking someone else, you know, which he was doing, seeing only what they know. So, for instance, as soon as they know he's in a white truck, We thought, well, maybe we have a shot from inside a white truck driving by a house looking at it and Mm -hmm. we know this is this guy. And then when they know what gloves he has, well, maybe we see those gloves when we know what camera he used, you know, and sort of as he's being revealed to them, see more of him. Mm -hmm. Um, Netflix wisely said, don't eat it. It's going to be fine without it. And it's interesting, though. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I also realized that to really be there with those characters it's really important not to know or see anything more than they know or see. You yeah. know, to be on that ride with them, I think it's important not to, not to know more.
0: Yeah. Even, even with it being straightforward, I, I'm just curious if there was anything, you know, the series is very much about storytelling and mm-hmm. details mm-hmm. and, and how trauma and coping mechanisms impede, you know, access to those details in some ways. Uh, and if there was an element there you wanted to explore it all, because I know A you lot. didn't, uh, you didn't really like try to fake out the audience like maybe she's not telling the truth
1: well you know some people there are people who weren't sure at the end of
0: episode one
1: and i don't mind that Mm. you know i wasn't trying to fake them out but i wasn't trying to make it clear either Mm -hmm. i actually was hoping that people would find themselves allied with the detective who's getting frustrated you know, and saying, I don't know what to believe. You're making it very hard for me to know what to believe. You've told me four different things, you know, and um, I really, really didn't want to vilify him. There was a, I read in Ken and T's book, Ken Armstrong and T Miller um, wrote the article in the book uh, that when he found out what he had done and the mistake he'd made, he called that the worst day of his life. Mm. That was the basis of his character for me. This is not somebody who goes around thinking he does bad things in the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's a good guy, you know, the idea that he's done something so egregious is so is really painful to him. So it was it was I didn't mind people being able to, you know, buddy up to him and mm-hmm. understand why he's making the decisions he's made. They're terrible. They're the wrong decisions. But yes, in terms of trauma, yes, we we learned a lot about how trauma informs One's reaction, you know and and their ability to tell what's happened to them. um the whole you know it's interesting i've we've learned a lot since this too, and I was talking to a detective who now spends his time. he has a thirty five year career in law enforcement, and he said all thirty five years were not informed about tr- what trauma does to the brain. So now he spends his full-time job is advocating for trauma training for cops. Wow. and when he was trained, and and this training still happens, job number one in investigating a sexual assault is to determine the reliability of the victim. That's the first thing. So obviously that's not trauma-informed. We tried to show that in every um, survivor of these attacks, that there was some way in which her recollection was affected by the trauma of what she went through. One thing I kind of regret is that I didn't you know, there is a there's a gender difference, obviously, between the detectives in Colorado and the detectives in Washington. There's also a training difference mm-hmm. and there's an experience difference. I could have made that clearer,
0: but I think it stood out to me, honestly, okay, because as I'm ahead. watching it, I'm like, that was a, that was something I think a note I jotted down when I was watching the first episode for the second time recently was like why can't they train these people differently? Right. Right. <laughs> they were trained, just trained wrong. Yeah, and I think about it as well as in terms of just police shootings,, yeah. same thing.
1: Yeah, like yeah it ve- it's it's seems like thing, it's in the same part in it. the same family. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, you talked briefly there about music. Just tell mm-hmm. me about how choices with music evolved and how you wanted to use that.
1: Uh, well, Will Bates had a really good feel for it. The music he was writing for it was it, it felt really right mm-hmm. early on. Again, we didn't want it to be pushed. We didn't want any of the emotion. To be pushed, this is just a piece that you had to really be careful about not letting the audience feel like you were telling them what you wanted them to feel or think. We wanted something that would communicate the confusion and the, uh, in terms of Marie's story, the sort of disjointed way her thoughts are gathering. And then also with with Parker, if you look at him, the, the music that accompanies him, there's something a little off in the sound of it. And but he's subtle, you know. He's got a very, a very soft touch, which yeah. I like. Yeah. By the end, I think his music by the end is really supportive of what I think is is very strong emotion, but again, not pushing it.
0: Yeah. You know. As I understand it, that final phone call between Marie and the detective happened. It did.
1: As Marie has said, the words were all different, but the, <laughs> when she watched it, she said um, not to me, but to Ken Armstrong. She said that it felt like the same kind of spirit yeah spirit yeah. of it
0: exactly yeah so well did you struggle still nevertheless with, with how to end it did Did you want to end it with that
1: yeah yeah, yeah i wanted to end it with that these yeah. two people
0: hundreds of miles apart
1: yeah. yep i really like that it ends with the word thank you mm-hmm. i guess that's two words um <laughs> her first line is i've been raped and her last line is thank you which i, I don't know, i'm really into bookends and those mm-hmm. feel like good ones but there's a quality. Boy, Merritt Weaver so good, huh? And yeah. there's a quality she brings to that phone call in which she just, I think, opens up the heart of that character. And you feel like she understands from a personal place everything that that girl is going through, you know, and their, their reluctance to hang up on both their parts. Mm-hmm. I'm really moved by. And, I, you know, I didn't want it to end You know, I didn't, I didn't want it to feel like a happy ending and whatever that means. You know, I, I, there, obviously this is something that this young woman is going to be carrying around with her. Like, you know, like Merritt says in one of the early episodes, you know, like a, like a bullet in the spine for her life. So I didn't want to deny that by ending it with too much closure. Mm -hmm. But I did want, I did want them to connect, you know, it was important that they connect. They
0: did. You know. Yeah, definitely. And then, last thing before we start to wrap it up, there's been a lot of talk about a possible return for this <laughs> series. You know, anthologizing it in some ways. Is, is your head anywhere on that right now? No. Personally, but, I would love to see Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, I'll know, do anything with Merritt and Tony again. <laughs> Maybe there's more stories to attack or something like that. I don't know, but I don't like, think there's. I don't think there's another no.
1: Grace Rasmussen and Karen Duvall story. <laughs> I think Certainly. if there's another really spectacularly told and piece of um, material or uh, story we find Sarah and I find that is as good if not better but that's a really really high bar you know if the story warranted it we'd do it but we're not you know I I don't nobody wants to do a not quite as good second season of something you feel feel good about how how you did the first time right
0: I I hear you yeah (laughs) definitely. (laughs) All right. We're in the home stretch here. Uh, Just a few rapid Uh fire questions for you. Uh, You attended AFI. I did. Here in L.A. Yep. Uh, What's the most important thing you learned in film school?
1: Uh, Rewriting. Yeah. They had a really good film script library. Mm -hmm. So I would spend every afternoon going through the draft. I'd I'd pull out five drafts and and they had collections of multiple drafts, Uh but pull out five drafts of a movie I loved and I'd read them from the first to the fifth, and I'd see, how, you know, this was in the time of every, every writer saying, oh, development's hell. They just make your script worse. It's just bad notes. And you know, yeah, that happens sometimes. <laughs> but also sometimes rewriting is great mm-hmm. and and you just make it better. So I did that religiously. I did it with every movie I loved and they had a great collection. I'm sure they still do. I don't know if it's open to non-students, but boy, that's that's a real great resource.
0: Once they digitize that collection, yeah, that'd be worth doing. Yeah, maybe they have.
1: That'd be good. So that was, yeah, rewriting, rewriting. You can always make it better.
0: What time of day are you most productive as a writer? 4.30 a.m. Really?
1: Yeah. Before the kids are up. Yeah. I used to write late at night. I used to start writing around 11 o'clock at night and then I'd just write until I dropped and then I'd wake up and just keep writing. And uh, I get very easily distracted by light. So I just draw all the shades and I just work in darkness. Um, and then I had family and and then, you know, I found it really hard to write if you start the day with like, oh, I got to make somebody's lunch. And I mean, <laughs> and then yeah. I don't know who I am, you know? Yeah. So I started getting up a little before them, and then a little bit more before them. And so now I, yeah, I get up at around four thirty, and I generally work from like four thirty to eleven, and then I take a break and deal with life stuff and business stuff, and then I you know, grab another like not very productive hour or two in the afternoon sometimes.
0: Maybe yeah, I should give that a shot. I've got a three year old.
1: It's good. Yeah. It's good. Get up before them, and Sounds then right. and then like you own your brain for a little while, and it's easy to come back to it. You know, it's hard. I find it hard to find that place if I don't start the day there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, This is an impossible question, maybe. Uh, Best screenplay of all time or maybe your favorite if you don't have the best. Wow. Best screenplay of all
1: time. Well, this is not going to be a direct answer. I feel like every screenwriting problem is solved somewhere in... Tootsie. <laughs> I always, if I'm ever in a logjam, I think, oh, well, it's got to be some problem like this. And Oh, yeah, that's what they did. I think Witness is a brilliant screenplay. I mean, that's, that's hard, man. I hey, don't sorry. know. I'm going to like say one and then leave <laughs> this place and think of the seven better ones that I didn't say.
0: Well, th- maybe this next one will be a little easier. Uh, I asked this of everyone. Uh, what was the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Network. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was, I think I snuck in, I was young too. I like, it was New Jersey in the seventies. They let eight year olds into R rated movies. You know, you Mm -hmm. can do whatever you want, but I, I don't know. I don't know how I got there, but I was alone because it was New Jersey in the seventies and 11 year olds were alone in movie theaters. And, and I saw it and just completely blew my mind. I just thought whatever this is, (laughs) I want to be a part of it. This, you know, this tradition of American storytelling. I just, the, the fact that it, blew the lid off of stuff, you know, I, I wasn't. Remains relevant. Y- oh my God. So relevant. It will be relevant so good.
0: <laughs> for years to come. I know.
1: <laughs> I know. So that early on and then Nashville, mm-hmm. but really it was network. And that was the one that made me say, this is a tradition I want to be a
0: part of if I can. Would also be a fair answer to the best screenplay. Yeah, <laughs> question. for too, sure. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, exceptional work with thank this series. Uh, truly, it's, it's, I think it's one of the best things I've seen this year. No, so nice uh, congrats on Thanks it. And much. thank you for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: I think what Susanna and her team of writers and directors achieved with this series is something akin to that empathy machine I talked about a few episodes ago. There's a subjective quality to the filmmaking and Unbelievable and a sense of compassion in its storytelling that roots it and allows it to transcend what you might expect from a story like this. So please check it out. Unbelievable is available to stream on Netflix right now. The Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix.